0: Cadenza, melisma, appoggiatura, all are terms associated with the bel canto repertoire. But what do they all mean? And what do they sound like? Find out in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
0: In the bel canto repertoire, virtuosity is a singer's calling card, And audiences can't wait to hear what new vocal tricks a singer will bring to a role. But how do we know what's acceptable, or stylistically appropriate? And what would sound out of place? What did composers of the time expect singers to do? I'm Naomi Barratera, and in this episode, lecturer Matthew Timmermans will guide us through the art of beautiful singing.
2: In that 1962 excerpt from Vincenzo Bellini's La Sonnambula, you may be surprised to know that none of the notes sung by soprano Dame Joan Sutherland were written in the score. What you just heard was a cadenza, or virtuosic passage, at the end of the aria that the composer expected the performer to create using her own artistry and knowledge of successful singing traditions. The only indication that Bellini wanted the singer to embellish the end of his aria is a direction for the orchestra, the Italian words col canto, which mean with the voice, in musical terms, this phrase tells the orchestra that they must follow the singer in whatever way she decides to fulfill Bellini's notation. In an interview with Opera News's Edward Downs on January 26, 1963, sopranos Birgit Nielsen and Sutherland discuss how they approach a composer's notation.
3: Yes. We should make every effort to carry out the composer's wishes. However, sometimes traditions make it very difficult. Um, For example, if a great and popular singer of the past has pleased an audience by singing a phrase, or even a note entirely in his own way, ignoring the composer, the public almost expect us to do the same.
4: Well, yes, that's quite true, Birgit. But, of course, in the bel canto repertoire we have a good deal of freedom. Um, every composer of the early 19th century and even earlier, beginning with Mozart himself, made it clear that we were to take over on our own in any way we pleased. This applied not only to singers, of course, but to instrumentalists as well in their own pieces.
3: But it was mainly for the interpolated parts where a singer made up her own music, especially for your kind of wonderful fireworks, Joan.
2: Unlike our modern understanding that musical scores include all the notes the composer would have wanted, singers were once expected to add to the written music. Since opera's birth in the 15th century until the end of the 19th century, the relationship between performers and composers had been collaborative. In other words, once a composer wrote his score, it was only considered a skeleton that he expected singers to fill. One of the several styles of Italian opera conceived with the understanding that the composer and performer crafted the singer's part is now referred to as bel canto. This style reaches its apex around the early 19th century until its eventual decline in the middle of the same century. Although these operas were not called bel canto operas by their original audiences, we use the term reflexively to distinguish these Italian operas from those composed later in the century. But what makes these bel canto operas different from the Italian operas written by, say, Puccini, Leoncavallo, or even late Verdi? Although there are many answers to this question, In this episode, we will concentrate on only one, how bel canto operas were sung. In a radio broadcast, Taryn McEwen and conductor Richard Bonning explain what the broad term bel canto can mean.
5: That
3: is music for pure bel canto singing. I'm often asked what bel canto means, and all I can say is just what the literal translation means, beautiful singing. I suppose one can always add beauty of tone and elegance and nuance of legato for dramatic and emotional expression, And certainly flexibility and poise in the florid passages. I suppose all that would be my definition. Yes, Terry, but but it's even more than that.
4: It also expresses a whole era, a long period in musical history... ...when Handel, Gluck, Mozart, Rossini, Bellini and Donizetti... ...were writing for the
3: human voice. They did more than write, it seems to me, by not writing. That's so true. They actually catered to the singers... ...by letting them insert all sorts of embellishments of their own creation... Rossini even provided his vocalist friends with many delectable ornamentations for those blank spaces left in scores of other composers.
4: This must sound very shocking nowadays when a singer reaps great criticism for inserting a single innocent high C into an aria.
3: Yes, but
5: fireworks weren't
2: enough. As Bonning suggests, singers of the bel canto era extended vocal virtuosity to its greatest degree. Uh,
4: of Of course, bel canto Although it's beautiful singing that doesn't mean just just singing beautiful long flowing phrases it also means uh doing all sorts of hair raising tricks bel canto also becomes a, in in many ways a great circus act because it, it, there are so many things which are of enormous difficulty to perform
2: the demanding music that singers were expected to perform also reflects the talent cultivated in the early 19th century or when Bonning describes Belcanto as becoming a high cult. At this time, audiences witness the end of the Castrato lineage with the retirement of Giovanni Battista Voluti, who some consider to have been the last of the great castrated superstars. Because they were castrated at birth, these men maintained and cultivated a powerful soprano range, while also having superhuman breath control due to their enlarged ribcages. With these unnatural biological changes, castrati would execute vocal acrobatics unimaginable today, thereby raising 19th century audiences' expectations for vocal virtuosity. Due to the eerily unnatural sound and appearance of these men, however, castration eventually became unpopular and was outlawed. Nonetheless, audiences were not left wanting. In the wake of the castrati, the 19th century's greatest divas arose to fill their place, including Isabella Cobran, Maria Malabràn, and Giuditta Pasta. At the beginning of the 19th century, not only were vocal tastes changing, but also the role of the composer. Although by this time European instrumental composers, such as Ludwig van Beethoven, expected their performers to respect their notation, Italian opera composers continued to treat their singers as collaborators, perhaps owing to their generation's incredible technical abilities. Some of these opera composers include Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, and even Verdi early in his career. Unfortunately, by the middle of the 19th century, as noted by Rossini in 1858, alas for us, we have lost our bel canto. In this episode, we are going to explore what this lost bel canto might have sounded like and how it differs from the way these operas have been performed in the last 100 years. To hear this difference, we will listen to and compare several recordings. Our goal is not to say that one recording is necessarily better than another, but rather we shall explore the plethora of ways that these operas can be sung. Like myself, I hope that you'll hear beloved performances in a whole new way, particularly the aspects we'll be looking at, including cadenzas, appoggiaturas, variations, puntatura, and interpolated high notes. The first excerpt we listened to was an example of a cadenza. These unaccompanied virtuosic passages typically occur at the end of a musical section notated with a fermata, the hold notation in music. Although cadenzas are usually only signaled, not written in the original manuscripts, 20th century publications often include a suggested cadenza that was either written by the composer or transcribed after a successful performance. Despite these suggestions, Singers are expected to consider this as only one example among many possibilities. In the 19th century, many singers had more than one version of each cadenza they performed. The early 19th century French soprano, Laure saint d'Amoreau, who performed several of Rossini's French operas, including Guillaume Tell, had five different versions of one cadenza in her notebook. An interesting side note for those of you who tuned in to episode 106, Divas Uncensored, she studied with Angelica Catalani, a diva known for her excessive embellishments, which perhaps influenced Santi Demoro's interpretive preferences. Like Santi Demoho, many singers will perform a different cadenza depending on the performance. One example is Coloratura Soprano Adita Grubarova, who recorded two different renditions of Gilda's cadenza in Rigoletto at the end of her act one aria Caro Nome. In this 1984 studio recording, Gruberova sang the cadenza published in Verdi's score. 1981 film adaptation of Rigoletto, also starring Gruberova, she sang a more elaborate rendition of the cadenza, influenced by interpretations of previous performers. Following the advent of recording, performers and audiences were introduced to new ways of performing and listening to opera. Rather than each performance being transient or ephemeral, now a single performance could be captured and repeated. Contrary to saint Damoreau, who created several unique cadenzas for herself, a really successful recorded cadenza would become immortalized, causing audiences to expect that version and performers to emulate it, the result of mass-produced recordings is performers and listeners believing that they are preserving a historical tradition, because it's documented on record, when in fact they are missing the entire point of the bel canto singing style, the freedom for the performer to create, rather than simply interpret. More often than not, this is what happens when sopranos perform Lucia's cadenza at the end of her Act Three Mad scene from Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor. Donizetti's suggested cadenza is quite simple. Part of the reason is because the castrati had such astounding lung capacity that singers were expected to sing an entire cadenza in one breath. Here, we will listen to soprano Montserrat Caballé in the 1976 Philips recording of Lucia. It is quite brief, and those of you who know the opera from other recordings will most likely not even think it belongs to the opera. type of cadenzas we are used to hearing today are more declamatory and broken up by several breaths. This reflects the style cadenzas would take later in the 19th century. This includes the most influential version of Lucia's cadenza created and preserved on record in 1904 by the Australian diva Nellie Melba. Melba's cadenza was renowned for its virtuosity to such an extent that sopranos who later performed Lucia felt pressured to sing a similar variation to prove their own technical prowess. One such singer was the metropolitan opera favorite of the 1930s and 40s and film actress Lily Pons.
3: Tell me, Richard, I know you said that there was very little necessity for the prima donna to embellish or ornament in Lucia, but I think our audience would like to hear the little that there is, or at least as Joan does it. All right, Terry, I'll play you another example from the mad scene.
4: This is Joan's own ornamentation.
2: Although Bonning describes it as Sutherland's cadenza, you're not crazy if you think it sounds very similar to the Melba and Pons cadenzas that we just heard. In fact, it's almost exactly the same. In 1959, when Maria Callas recorded her second version of Lucia, she remarked that she was afraid to alter the so-called traditional version, which can be seen on her 1953 recording of the same opera. She was concerned that her detractors might think that she was no longer capable of performing the cadenza, as heard on record. In the end, she decided to alter it, but only by reducing part of it. soprano for whom Donizetti wrote Lucia was Fanny Tacchinardi Parisiani. Apparently, each time she repeated an aria, she could create a different cadenza. In an attempt to recreate this practice, soprano Cheryl Studer created a new cadenza for Lucia's mad scene. By the latter half of the 19th century, composers had ceased to write cadenzas and did not expect performers to add them. However, it is thanks to the published score, usually containing an exemplar, that we know today if and where a cadenza should be sung. Unfortunately, not all bel canto traditions were so thoroughly documented. Although in a cadenza, singers have almost complete interpretive freedom The tasteful use of appoggiaturas in the early 19th century Italian opera was obligatory. An appoggiatura is an Italian word that refers to two notes that are written identically at the end of a musical phrase. But the composer expected the performer to sing them differently. Instead of singing what the composer
5: wrote,
2: the note that comes before the last in the phrase would almost always be sung a step above the latter. However, in a phrase like this, the final note could also be approached from below. As you probably felt, appoggiaturas add emotional weight to the end of a musical phrase. If you found it difficult to hear the appoggiaturas in those examples, Do not feel discouraged. Appoggiaturas can be challenging to hear at first because they are somewhat subtle, in comparison to other forms of embellishment that we will hear later in this episode. Before moving on, you may want to take another listen so that you can identify them in the coming clips. The practice of inserting appoggiaturas extends further back than the 19th century. Even composers like Mozart and Handel did not indicate them in the score. Often misconstrued as laziness, their omittance was simply because a singer knew to add them in performance, because the tradition had been passed down for decades. Like myself once, fans of Mozart may wonder, why then are appoggiaturas often missing from early Mozart recordings? As composers like Bellini and Verdi sought more control over how their works were performed, they began to write in the appoggiaturas where they wanted them, thereby rendering a singer's need to insert them obsolete. As musicologist Stanley Sadie notes, in the early and middle 20th century, the false supposition that the alteration of the printed note represented a violation of the composer's intentions led to a more literal interpretation of notation and the virtual abandonment of appoggiaturas, an interpretive misapprehension which the early music movement has endeavored, with limited success, to correct since the 1970s. This means that when Mozart's operas were performed in the 1950s and 60s, singers only sang the notes written in the score, as opposed to an 18th-century singer who would have added appoggiaturas. In the 1960 EMI recording of Mozart's Don Giovanni, for example, we can hear Elisabeth Schwarzkopf performing Elvira's Act II Recitative without appoggiaturas. For those of you who may not know, Recitative is an Italian word that refers to vocal writing that mimics dramatic speech. Unlike that 1960 recording, the 2006 Harmonia Mundi recording is one among many contemporary attempts to recreate what scholars think 18th century audiences might have heard. Here is the same excerpt from Don Giovanni instead sung by Alexandrina Pendacenska. Perhaps you may agree with me that the music flows more naturally with the sighing feeling of the appoggiaturas. You may have also noticed that Pendachenska added a cadenza at the end of the recitative. Although it is not written in the score, in the musical treatises from Mozart's time, it is well documented that it was common practice to add a cadenza for effect. Appoggiaturas were also sung in arias, using Elvira's aria Mitradi. As an example, we can hear it sung without apoceturas by Schwarzkopf. Once again, you can hear the difference as Pendichenska adds an appoggiatura wherever Schwarzkopf sang two repeated notes. Like classical-era composers such as Mozart, Belcanto composers including Rossini and Donizetti rarely specified appoggiaturas in their notation. Like Mozart, they were confident that singers knew what needed to be done. Bellini, on the other hand, who began his career after Rossini and Donizetti used grace notes, or miniature notes without exact duration, to notate appoggiaturas in his 1831 masterpiece, Norma. Consequently, When it comes to appoggiaturas, the performance of this opera has been fairly consistent since its inception, as you can hear in the 1953 EMI recording starring Maria Callas as Norma. Note that the appoggiaturas are the descending two notes at the end of each phrase. When Verdi wrote out the appoggiaturas as we're used to seeing them today in plain notation, he carried the process to its logical conclusion. In the following decades, the tradition of not notating appoggiaturas or even using grace notes to indicate them, became obsolete. Although in Verdi's operas, appoggiaturas are not usually added by the singer, you can still hear how Verdi's compositional style maintains the leaning effect of the appoggiatura, that adds forward movement to the end of each phrase. We can hear this in the recitative before Abagaila's actuaria, "Ben io t'invenni," in Verdi's third opera, Nabucco. by 1850, Verdi wrote out all the appoggiaturas in his autograph score for Rigoletto. he nevertheless instructed that the recitative preceding the trio in the last act must be declaimed without the usual appoggiaturas. Although this may appear unimportant at first glance, this little note is worth mentioning because it informs us that singers were still interpreting appoggiaturas even though composers were no longer expecting them to do so. Knowing this, Verdi added this note to make sure that this particular section would be performed without modifications that singers might otherwise have considered self evident. You can hear that the repeated notes at the end of each phrase are unaltered, as requested by Verdi on the 1989 Decca recording of Rigoletto, sung by Leonucci and Nikolai Giorov.
1: Eccone dieci e dopo l'apri il resto. E qui rimane, sì, alla mezzanotte ritornerò. Non cale
5: a gettarlo
2: nel fiume basto io solo.
1: Il vo far io stesso, sia. Il suo nome puoi sapere anche il mio.
2: our contemporary notion that the printed score is the only way to perform an opera has also erased other crucial aspects of the bel canto style. Sutherland alludes to one of these in the same 1963 interview we heard at the beginning of this episode.
4: Mm, But apart from the interpolations, a composer will very often write over a phrase, the two words, um, a piacere, which means roughly at the singer's pleasure. Though the notes and the tempi are generally indicated, we can sing the particular passage in whichever way we feel best conveys the dramatic intent.
3: Exactly.
2: The freedom that Sutherland refers to is often called variation, ornamentation, or in Italian, fioratura. Using Sutherland and mezzo-soprano Marilyn Horne to demonstrate, Bonning shows us what these terms sound like in practice.
4: We often read in the newspapers about Fioratura. I wonder, does, does everybody know exactly what Fioratura means? It, it, in a, it's an Italian word which means flowering. And, and uh, it, it means that a, a line of music, a, a melody, becomes decorated and, 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 and adorned. And, for example, if you take something like a little piece like Home Sweet Home. Can play that melody, which is dead simple. If a a singer of of the nineteenth century singing that might well have sung something of that nature. There are a hundred thousand ways to decorate. Should should we show something uh, to to explain what we mean? What about the tanti palpitì? I could do like the first phrase, and you do do, know, do it, it bare, and then bare. do it ornamented, okay. just to show. That. F,
3: Yeah. that yeah, brings up the same thing, yeah. uh, the, the
4: sonambra. Just the sing with the, if you forget the word, sing with you.
5: Mm. And now,
4: uh, uh, now, now, do me one of the variations.
2: Rossini explained the reason that a composer repeats a passage in an aria is expressly so that each singer may vary it, so as best to display his or her peculiar capacities. The use of repetition to this end preceded Rossini and even Mozart. In fact, it reached its pinnacle during the Baroque era, or the early 18th century, in the form of the De Capo aria the De Capo aria consisted of a first section, which was repeated after a brief contrasting section, such that the repetition could be used to show off. Those of you who have heard Cherubino's actuaria, Voi che Sapete, in La Nozze di Figaro, will notice that the repeat of the melody is usually sung exactly as Mozart wrote it, without additional embellishments. Contrary to Cecilia Bartoli's interpretation that we just heard, the suggested ornamentation for this aria, written by Domenico Cori, an 18th century vocal pedagogue, suggests that even Mozart's music was heavily ornamented. Here is soprano Mireille Delange performing Cori's suggested ornaments. Recognizing the importance of ornamentation in Italian opera, Rossini created an operatic form called the cabaletta, or concluding fast section to an aria, which is basically an expansion of the de capo aria. We can see how singers embellish a cabaletta by listening to Faliero's Act One cabaletta from the rarely performed Rossini opera Bianca e Faliero performed by mezzo-soprano Jennifer Larmor. First, the melody is sung without ornamentation. Then, there is a short transition, like a bridge in a pop song, which often ends with an added cadenza. The middle section brings us back to the original melody, which is altered by the singer. will conclude with a coda and cadential phrases whose similarity in each piece encourage free improvisation. heard in Larmore's rendition, repeats were meant to be significantly varied, sometimes altering the melodic shape. This gave singers the opportunity to intensify and personalize the music, adding to its dramatic meaning and musical content. When Santi demoreau gave her students examples of ornaments, she told them, I do not offer them to you to be performed at any cost, despite your physical capabilities and your character. I propose these models of variations, rather, so that later your taste will lead you, within your individual means, to invent others that suit you properly. In addition to notebooks like Santi d'Amarò's, that contain several versions of one varied passage, we know that composers expected singers to decorate because Rossini sometimes wrote suggestions for interventions. In the rondo finale from Rossini's La Donna del Lago, we can hear how soprano Katia Ricciarelli performs some of Rossini's suggested ornaments in a 1983 live performance from the Rossini Festival in Pizarro. When the melody repeats, you can hear how she embellishes it differently each time. i Because important singers from the 1830s, like Santi de Moreau, continued to perform and teach others about ornamentation, we can assume that embellishment remained fundamental in the operas of Bellini and Donizetti composed at the same time. Although embellishment was still expected in the composers' cabalettas, the ornamentation was less elaborate. We can hear this in one of my favorite Donizetti operas, Rosmonda d'Inghilterra. This opera hadn't been performed for more than a hundred years until it was revived in 1975 by Opera Rara, a recording company whose mandate is to revive forgotten operas from the 19th century. Rosmonto was recorded in its entirety in 1994, and it's from this recording that we will hear the final aria, with ornamentation added in the second half, as sung by soprano Nelly Miraciu. his earlier colleagues, Verdi sometimes suggested ornaments to performers singing his 1840s operas. However, the use of ornamentation in Verdi's middle works, including Rigoletto, Il Trovatore, and La Traviata, composed in the 1850s is more controversial. One, there is less documentation by working singers about ornamentation in his works between 1850 and 1860. Two, Although Verdi wrote at length about his irritation with singers tampering with his work for the sake of showmanship, his operas still employ similar forms as early Belcanto works that invite the performer to embellish the music, unlike his late works such as Un and in Mascara, Aida, and Falstaff that no longer have cabalettas. Three, as the most performed Italian opera composer from the 19th century, most opera lovers believe that his works are of such genius that they should not be tampered with, in other words, we should only perform the notes he wrote. Despite these disputes, singers like Sutherland with her conductor husband Richard Bonning, successfully risked adding modest decorations to Verdi's middle works. I describe them as modest because the late Philip Gossett, one of the world's leading scholars on bel canto performance, notes that in Verdi an occasional diminution, a turn in figure, can appropriately be applied to repeated passages in Verdi, when the operas are performed complete, but ornamental variations a la Rossini and Bellini are to be excluded. Despite being less embellished, we can still hear resemblances in form between Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti's operas and Verdi's works that suggest Verdi expected his cabalettas still to be ornamented. To conclude part one of this episode on Balcanto ornamentation, Let's hear Sutherland perform Leonora's Act IV Cabaletta from the 1976 Decca recording of Trovatore, in which she ornaments the melody when it repeats.
0: was Matthew Timmermans discussing the art of improvisation and ornamentation in the bel canto repertoire. Many thanks to Matthew for joining us on the podcast this summer. We look forward to having him in person here at Lincoln Center in January, teaching our Singers of the Ring course. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.